every successful person got there by going through tough times. Success is a hard-ass teacher who likes to knock you around along that journey. You know, it takes real guts to not give up and keep going. We'll hear stories about failures and how these leaders flipped the script to create success. I'm John Schultz. Join me and let's discover how success is never really overnight. Welcome to the John Schultz Podcast. We have an amazing guest today, Salim Ramji uh, from BlackRock, which is an, a, a terrific company. He's Senior Managing Director and Global Head of iShares and Index Investments since 2019. And what freaked me out, and you know, I still can't believe it, is he's overseeing $5.6 trillion uh, in total, and for iShares, $2.9 trillion. I mean, there's a T in that number, which is incredible. Uh, and iShares is part of the BlackRock family. It specializes in exchange-traded funds, engineered to help you meet your investment goals, which we all need and, and want that insight. You help 100 million investors, which is incredible. Uh, it's like, you know, I know with Facebook, you know, with users, it's like those numbers are staggering with, with how you do that in the investment business. Two decades in and around asset management, formerly head of BlackRock U.S. Wealth Advisory Business, and corporate strategy prior to that. Uh, senior partner at, uh, partner at McKinsey & Company, consulting, uh, asset management. That's sort of interesting how that came together. Uh, a law degree at University of Cambridge, born in Tanzania and grew up in Canada. Welcome and thank you so much for being here. We really appreciate it. It's great to be here, John. I've been a big fan of your show and I've loved listening to it. And so thank it's, uh, you. it's an honor to be a guest. I love that. Thank you so much. Uh, all right. So as, as we all know who listens to this podcast, it's the myth of overnight success. And we want to learn about the person because a lot of times in business, we define ourselves about what we do. And I just think there's so much more to, to, to all of us than, than that. And getting to know someone uh, is always a great thing. And we start out, you know, on this show when you're young. So what did you want to be when you grew up as a kid? So I, I, as you noted, I, I grew up in Canada and uh, uh, like every good Canadian, I grew up wanting to be a professional hockey player. Uh, I was a terrible hockey player. I tried it for a bit and I was a goalie. Um, and um, uh, shortly before I was cut from the hockey team, uh, you know, my hero growing up was a guy named Ken Dryden, who was the goalie for the Montreal Canadiens uh, for a number of years. And, and shortly before being cut from the hockey team, my coach had pointed out to me that Ken Dryden uh, was both a goalie, but he also went to law school. Uh, and so maybe I should think of a fallback career if the professional hockey thing didn't quite work out. Uh, it never did work out. I was enthusiastic about it, but I was always like pretty bad. Uh, but I ended up, you know, uh, uh, I, I don't know if I ended up going to law school because like Ken Dryden also went to law school or because, you know, uh, I, I was following a different path, but, uh, but that was certainly my dream uh, at the age of nine. Yeah, it's so it's so, I always say it's so great to be part of sports or, you know, whatever you want to do as a young person, you, you get to learn teamwork and life skills and how to get along. Right. And yeah, and, uh, not just make it all about you, which is why I love. No, and, team, and team you anything. can be enthusiastic about something, even if you're not very good at it. Exactly. Like say, I certainly was enthusiastic about it. And I was, uh, by all accounts, not very good at it. So. That's good though. At least you tried. I uh, my my thing was soccer. I I, I I thought I was good at it, but obviously I, I was never going to be able to get to the next level. 
Okay, so obviously that's a nice dream to have, and you know, uh, you know, the law school thing. We know uh, you ended up doing that, but how do you feel your parents influenced you when you were growing up? Uh, I think that's just a, such an important question to ask, and love to hear it from you. Yeah, I, look, I, I think my parents influenced me in at least a couple of ways. Uh, one of them was just on the importance of getting a good education. Uh, you know, neither of my parents went to college, uh, neither of them finished high school, uh, but they were very adamant about the need to go to college, uh, even though, uh, and they didn't really care which college, uh, it could be any college, uh, but, but just the importance of that, I think, was, um, was quite profound to them, even though they didn't, they didn't know uh, what it was, uh, but they knew it was a, uh, a, a ticket to, you know, financial security. Right. Uh, and I think the financial security was also something that was um, uh, taught to me. Uh, some of it was through firsthand experience. You know, it was the early 80s and there was a recession and, and, and things were downwardly mobile for a period of time. Uh, but, uh, but I do remember even with you know, they had lots of loans and interest rates were, were in, the, in the teens at that point. Uh, my mother would always put away a little bit of money into the equivalent of a 401k plan. And it might have been $100 or it might have been a small amount of money. Uh, but that was always a signal um, that times may be tough, but there's, you know, good hope ahead. And so uh, I always liked the idea of investing being a sign of hope because you're betting on a future and you're betting on the future being better. So. Uh, so both of those things, I think, were, were deep into me. You know, the idea that uh, uh, going to college is a good thing and um, financial security, which I think is very tied into that, uh, is a really important thing, particularly if you've lived through the opposite of that, which for different periods I, I had. I love your mom. I love that you learned that. That's amazing. <laughs> you know, you, you, it's amazing, like, the little things that stick with us through our lives and would define us uh, on how we move forward. So, okay, so you went to college, you did it, amazing, right? Uh, big feat for the family. So can you tell us, so how you became interested in the field of finance? I know that your mother gave you these little insights, but still, that doesn't mean you're gonna go into the field. And payments, and how did you start your career uh, and what track did you take? Well, my, my first job, and I guess I'm on my, you know, fourth career right now at BlackRock, uh, uh, but my first job, out of law school was uh, I ended up, you know, I wanted to go work at the World Bank. Uh, and you couldn't just get a job at the World Bank, you needed some field experience. And so what, what I ended up doing was I worked in, in, in the field of microfinance uh, and ended up doing field work in the north of Pakistan. And so this was a poor country and this was the poorest region of a poor country. And uh, the idea behind um, this organization that I was part of was that you gave out small loans to people who were starting businesses. Uh, it could be like a chicken hatchery or like an apricot, you know, um, um, kind of market. Uh, and these would be loans of like a dollar uh, wow. in its equivalent or $2. And you'd teach people how to save and how to invest. Uh, and many of these folks were, were uh, you know, victims of predatory lending uh, uh, in the region. And so you could teach community-based kind of banking practices. And, and so I, I sort of stumbled on finance, I'd say, I don't wanna say by accident, but kind of by accident. I was really interested in economic development, uh, but I could see even for a very, very poor segment of the population, 
it could have a transformative impact to their lives and livelihoods. Uh, and so that always stuck with me. And, and I got really interested, I think, in finance, perhaps because of that. I ended up being a corporate lawyer, but I do you know, work with banks and I'd work in, in finance and securitization. Uh, and then all the work at, at McKinsey I did was all uh, with asset managers and with wealth managers uh, 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 until I joined BlackRock. So, you know, I, I heard you say something which I, I wrote down, and it's it's a, it's unbelievable uh, quote. You know, what's the point of what you're doing? Why are you doing it? And, like, what, like that's such an important question to yeah. ask to get you motivated. So, you know, it, it seems like you wanted to be in economic development, and that quote, obviously, you wanted to feel purpose, right? Economic right. development is, is having a purpose of helping people. But what were some of the challenges? I mean, you're over in Pakistan. What were some of the challenges you had to get through? And does the purpose actually drive you to stay where you are longer? Or does it, you know, drive you in other ways? Yeah, it's a, a look, it was a, uh, uh, you know, working in a very rural part of Pakistan was, was uh, it was strange. I'd never been there. Uh, uh, you know, my family's historically, you know, before Tanzania from India. And so this is a totally different part of the world. And a lot of the businesses we were helping start were businesses that were empowering women. Uh, and so one of the challenges was how to convince um, uh, typically the men in the family um, to allow women to take out loans, start savings programs, open their own businesses. Uh, and that had, uh, you know, cultural and practical kind of points. And it wasn't just me. There was a, a group of, um, uh, you know, uh, uh, other folks there who were from Pakistan. There were men and women in our organization around it. But just it, it was a, uh, a cultural change uh, would probably be an understatement. But, but I do think, John, to your, to your broader point about purpose, uh, I, I don't think I defined it back then. It was just like, what's the point of what you're doing? And can you see the impact of what you're doing was kind of how I thought about it. Uh, but it's something I think about today uh, in the job that I have. And, and at the beginning, you threw out some really big numbers uh, in the trillions of dollars. And certainly that's one measure of how we think about BlackRock or how, you know, I think about iShares or index investing. Uh, but the real measure that I pay a lot of attention to is um, $50,000 or $55,000, which is the average account size of the average index investor at BlackRock. Uh, now, it's held through all of our partner firms, wealth managers, and direct platforms. We don't have a direct-to-consumer business. Uh, but I think about the average person who's investing in our funds um, isn't wildly wealthy. Uh, they're, you know, saving in their 401k plans. Um, uh, they're, you know, often buying an ETF for the first time. And, and so it's how do you get a sense of purpose by helping people invest for the first time. Uh, now, they're better off than a, a, a farmer in the north of Pakistan is, um, but uh, a lot of folks are still investing and wanting to invest for the first time. And I, and I think that there's a strong ethos of purpose, for me at least, in what I do. And I think uh, across, the whole, uh, across the whole firm, I think that's also true. Amazing. So has there ever been a time, I mean, you said you're on your fourth career, uh, you know, it's, it's been an amazing one. Has there ever been a time where you couldn't find a purpose and realize you needed a change? Like, you know, because you can start out feeling yeah. one thing and 
move to another? Is it is that been yeah, something no, that, I, I think is that what drives I, you to make your changes in your career? I, not not always. Look, I, I, I ended up going to law school. I practiced as a lawyer for a couple of years uh, uh, as well. Uh, uh, my main insight from doing that is I didn't like being a lawyer. Uh, and then I switched careers to do something else. Um, but um, but I don't I don't switch and change quickly. You know, there's there part of purpose, um, I think, is finding it. And I think part of finding it is a lot of, at least in my opinion, a lot of grueling hard work and labor to get to what that thing is. I don't think it just magically, you know, a sense of purpose, I don't think just magically falls on you or it's not just a, a word on a poster. Um, but I think it's trying to find deeper meaning in what you do and trying to connect that in terms of how you're helping other people. Could be your clients, could be your customers uh, uh, around it. But that in itself is a journey. Yeah. And so I'm not a big, um, you know, when people say, you know, follow your passion, uh, I'm not necessarily a big believer in that. I'm a big believer in find your passion. And I think finding your passion is itself a journey. It doesn't just happen overnight. And, and sometimes you have to hit a lot of dead ends until you find what really drives you and what really can define your purpose. So I think, you know, I'm a big believer in purpose, but I think that purpose is itself a journey. It's not just something, it's not an impulse, it's not something that, you know, magically uh, 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 falls down from the sky or from a poster, but it's, uh, it's, it's a journey of, of discovery and of learning and of hard work. And, uh, and I think when you get it, it's magical. And if you try to do all those things and you don't get it, yeah, probably need to switch and do something else. Yeah. It's funny. I equate it to flow. There's like, because we're never going to like everything we do. I mean, like, yeah. there's, there's all parts of what we do that, you know, we may not feel that flow. But I know when I'm in flow on a project or something that we're creating at Onyx Equities, which is my company, Yeah, I lose time or I can't believe, you know, the ideas that come out of me in a flow state. So I think that's like, you know, how you sort of No, that's find a great it. way to describe it. Yeah. And it's and it's a and the thing about flow, uh, at least in my own interpretation of it, is that it's not constant. It's not every day is like that. Uh, that but if you can find a job or find a firm or find a role that you're in where you're able to experience that from time to time. Like it makes some of the mundane bits better <laughs> and, 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 and it really, I think it, it requires a journey because you can't just like not have it one day and then give up and go do a different job uh, or be frustrated about it. Part of it is just really working at it and working through the difficult periods to get to the flow as you 100%, talk about. 100%. I agree. So you've lived, worked, studied. I mean, if you really look at where you've been and what you've done in so many different places, uprooting yourself to go and do what you're, you know, following your flow, finding your passion, all the things that we're talking about, immerse yourself in different cultures. H how has that helped you as a leader, both, per and both personally and professionally? Yeah, look, I, I think it's a, uh, probably in two ways. Uh, one way is that you get a greater sense of different people's perspectives uh, when you live in different parts of the world. Uh, and when you're able to understand um, what people are thinking in Hong Kong, because you've lived there or in London or in, you know, uh, in Vancouver or in New York. Uh, and, and so I think the, the ability to, to kind of live in different parts of the world and experience that in different parts of the world, um, uh, I think is, um, 
uh, it, it just gives, at least has given me, a better appreciation for other people's perspectives and, and hopefully a better respect and understanding that, uh, that good people can disagree about things. Uh, and, uh, and it's just really important to listen and to understand rather than just, you know, uh, uh, argue and berate, <laughs> which we <laughs> probably have a little bit too much of in the world these days. Um, I think the second thing is probably just a need for reinvention. Uh, and that's as much about living in different places as it is about doing different, uh, uh, whether it's, you know, I've had three different jobs here at BlackRock, I've had four different careers, uh, including BlackRock. And each one of those has required uh, a certain amount of reinvention. Uh, and even if you just think about iShares uh, and our index investing area, which I've been leading for the past four years, business is totally different today than it was four years ago. Uh, and it'll be totally different four years from now than it is today. And I think that need to keep thinking about what's next and what are the needs that you're not anticipating, that you should be anticipating, and what are the things that are coming um, that you didn't anticipate and how you adapt to that, you know, whether it's like a war uh, in Europe, which is what we started to experience uh, at the beginning of uh, last year, or a banking crisis, which we're starting to experience uh, at the beginning of this month. Um, these are all things that just, um, you know, you need to be prepared for. And I think that part of that is just a, an ability to keep reinventing and keep um, changing the nature of, uh, uh, of what you do in order, to, uh, in order to thrive, both as a leader and, and I think in, in, in the business that, um, um, that you oversee. It's it's funny. I like so real estate. I feel like I'm just a constant reinventor. Yeah, and it makes it exciting, right? Like we do value adds, so we're always going in and trying to look at what was there, what the community wants, and deliver that, and reinvent, and reinvigorate, uh, and leave something better than when we left. And I, it's I, you know, with moving around and doing different things, you know, I didn't do as much of it as you did when you were younger and, and getting through your career, but. I always found like putting myself in uncomfortable places, joining new clubs, you know, you know like learning something new, yeah. from going to a public speaking course and getting myself up in front of someone and constantly putting myself in those little pressure points uh, allowed me to always feel that reinvention is a thing that is not easy, but like I'm not scared of it. Right. And I think uh, you, you said that well, you know, the same thing, which is great. So when you're looking for a new opportunity, uh, and you know, this is something for maybe the younger crowd listening to this, what, what steps do you take to ensure it's the right fit? And the right opportunity could be your, you know, from a job to a deal to, to how right. you even think about what you do every day, right? So what's your, your process? So uh, my own process in terms of a, a new opportunity is, um, first, it's just talking to a wide variety of people. Uh, and, and one of the things that I try and do um, in the job that I'm in is uh, not just talk to people within BlackRock and not even just talk to, you know, uh, people who are our clients or could be our clients, you know, financial advisors or uh, other big institutional investors, uh, but also just talk to folks who are in the broader ecosystem. Um, so people who might uh, be in uh, the sales and trading departments of um, um, some of our big broker-dealer or banking partners and how they think about things like ETFs. And they think about it totally differently uh, than our clients might. 
you know, sometimes they'll think about it as a threat um, to the existing uh, way in which bonds are trading. Uh, many of them don't anymore, but that's useful. Um, or think about new and emerging platforms that are um, coming up in terms of how they're thinking about getting first-time investors or how they're thinking about um, uh, you know, aspects about bond trading, to take the example of bond ETFs, uh, some of these electronic trading venues. But I try and, the process is I try and cast a really wide net and I try and look for people who will have contradictory opinions. Because it's really easy, John, to kind of have your thesis, bond ETFs are great. And then you can certainly seek out a lot of people who believe in your thesis and it becomes really cozy and reaffirming. The thing I try and do is I try and talk to all the people who have the opposite point of view uh, and really understand why they have it um, so that as we're thinking about new opportunities or new areas for the business, we're, we're, we're cognizant of like, who do we have to convince or what do we have to do to improve our product uh, if there's a genuine kind of issue uh, uh, around it? And I think that's where a lot of the learning and a lot of the innovation comes from is in seeking out people who have the opposite point of view. Because even if they're wrong, uh, you now understand where the friction is. And if they're right, you've gotten some great feedback that you can use to improve your process, improve your product that you wouldn't have gotten if you just spend all day talking to people who agree with you. You know, it's funny. I am constantly trying to find out why I'm wrong about what I'm thinking. Like, and, and I think the more you're willing to be wrong, the more you're able to listen and actually, and I, that doesn't mean I'm going to agree with why someone thinks I'm wrong, yeah. but to hear it, to, to also be good with it, uh, to not make it about you and to make it about the process of getting to what your view and your answer will be, regardless of what you hear. Uh, I, th I think that's a powerful superpower, candidly. Uh, yeah, it is, but it's something that it's, um, you, you have to, at least I've tried to challenge myself to do it, including with my own management team and with clients and with partners and the like, because there's a powerful tendency, like you like people who agree with you. It's cozier, it's more comfortable. You can move on to your next meeting more easily. <laughs> and so you have to seek out people uh, who will disagree with you or empower people if they're on your team to disagree with you. And I think that's a you know, that's a rougher road because it takes more time. You have to really think about it. You have to elicit it. Um, uh, and sometimes you just want to move on. Yes. But, but you can't. And I think that's a, it's, a, it's an important part of the process. Certainly it's something that I've tried to do. Uh, but it requires work and it requires patience. <laughs> uh, yeah. And, uh, and totally. you got to build it in because it's not a natural, it's not a natural, like the natural flow is like, oh, yeah, you know, John's totally agree with me. He's a good guy. <laughs> Uh, uh, and so you need to find a way to do that. You need to find a way to, to also disagree respectfully with people, um, uh, uh, particularly if you're seeking out people for the desire and ability to disagree. Yeah, you know, it's funny. I'll, I'll give my view. I'll finish. I'll say, you know what? I could be wrong. What do you think? Like, like the minute you disengage someone from letting them know that you're okay about being wrong, it almost allows people to feel that they can speak their mind more freely. But I, I think however you do it, I think it's something very important to, to learn. So, okay, you're the global head of iShares and in, in Index Investments at BlackRock. You know, it's been crazy what's going on the last two, three years. Yeah. Uh, we're going into this now unknown feeling for a lot of people in the workforce. I mean, this is my third cycle. You know, I'm old. 
uh, or older, right. I would say. Uh, right. You've been through some cycles. Uh, a lot of people aren't going to feel what this feels. What do you think your biggest challenge is going to be uh, as a leader to, you know, uh, have your the people that you work with, your your team uh, understand where we're headed and also just, you know, clients and, you know, just every day doing business. Yeah, look, I think particularly from the seat that I'm in at the moment, which is, um, you know, I think a really disruptive technology in all of investment management. Uh, I really do think ETFs are that. Uh, and I thought that even before I was in the job that I was in. Uh, and uh, the challenge becomes how do we continue to think bigger uh, and think of massive new unlocks? Uh, because even despite, you know, the numbers you cited, the numbers you'll read about in the press and uh, you know, the ETF business is big across the industry at BlackRock, indexing is big across the industry at BlackRock, it's still a tiny portion of the overall markets in which we compete. You know, we've got 2% of the total market in, in relative to bonds. We've got, you know, uh, uh, five or six percent uh, ETFs as a percentage of the equity market. And so the market is still vast and the opportunity as I see it is still in the ability to grow two times, three times, four times the size of what we are today. And I think the challenge becomes there are so many things that are consuming my morning, my team's morning, this afternoon, this week, and this month. And we absolutely need to deal with current market issues as uh, our clients are experiencing them. That's why they hire us. That's why they pay us. And so being able to deal with and help them migrate through difficult crises, um, geopolitical issues, and, and the like, offering more choice with our um, um, 1,300 and growing uh, ETF offerings. And as a business, we need to take time and continue to challenge ourselves to think bigger and think of what's the bigger thing uh, that can come up or what's the next big thing that will double or triple or uh, even more the size of our business. And I think it's, it's really providing the time and the space to focus on the latter when there are so many demands <laughs> on um, current events. Uh, and I think that's, that's particularly the challenge in a business like ours, which is what genuinely is and which seeks to be uh, a disruptive technology and a disruptive force in the entire investment landscape, not just in ETFs or not just in indexation. So interesting, and, and I agree. But that's it's part of the fun of it. Like that, you know, it's a, it's a, it's a challenge, but it's like, it, it's what makes, it, it's, it's part of the flow, uh, to use your word before, and it's part of what makes the job exciting, uh, I think, for all of us. No one that I know that's successful, especially with this podcast, talks about the things that were easy and they did well. It's all about the hard things that they got through. Right. That's what makes us proud of what we do and, and you know, helps us grow. And I love that you talk so much about, you know, investing as technology. I'm, I, I love technology. I, I, I invest in early stage startups, I mostly through real estate, but I've grown that over the years. Uh, Aladdin, huge BlackRock, you know, absolutely uh, important product, right? That's really a difference maker for why you've grown so much. But I think we're going into this new world with, you know, from, you know, AI, you know, from ChatGBT, all the different products now they're getting talked about. Where, where do you see AI playing a role in the future of ETFs? And, and is it, are we there or is it just something that like, you know, I, I remember when the internet started, right? You, you didn't really know how or what 
the use case was. Do you see anything interesting moving forward? Yeah, it's it's certainly um, uh, and look, we we do apply and have applied a lot of um, uh, AI based technologies in our. Uh, quantitative business in our systematic investing business um, on our active platform. And so, uh, uh, you know, the leader of that business, Raffaele, one of my partners, he sort of set up a, a, a in partnership with Stanford University and AI Lab out there. And there's been a lot of great work and development that's been happening for years uh, 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 just over in that part of BlackRock. Now, because BlackRock is one firm, and because we operate on a single platform, we get to benefit from a lot of things that are happening all across BlackRock and a lot of innovations that are happening all across BlackRock. And so as you think about the ETF and the index business, uh, there are applications that we're doing to continue to automate and make um, things like our trading behaviors um, uh, uh, much more algorithmically driven and um, using some of the techniques uh, that um, uh, that our uh, uh, cousins over in, um, in in our systematic team have done also apply that to how we trade and how we apply um, greater precision to how we track indices. Uh, there are other applications that you can think of in terms of AI as just a pure investing area. And so we've got um, thematic ETFs um, which look at advances in robotics and artificial intelligence, for example. Uh, that uh, allow a individual investor or wealth manager who wants to track a theme all around robotics and AI as an investment opportunity to do that through an ETF. And then there's a whole series of things, John, that we haven't even dreamed of yet. Uh, but you can just, I mean, you, you play around with, uh, with ChatGPT and, and, and I did play around with the, you know, the free version that was put out a few months ago. And it's extraordinary. Uh, it's extraordinary in so many ways and in so many possibilities that we haven't even um, kind of dreamed of yet. And, and the couple of applications that I talked about are things that we're already doing. But the really exciting stuff is the things that we haven't yet thought about that we absolutely will be doing right. in uh, two years and three years. And that's part of the need for constant reinvention because all of a sudden a new technology or new application comes up uh, and, and you're able to apply it to the business that you do. And because the whole nature of our business in ETFs and, and, and indexation is essentially bringing the application of technology and the application of data to investment management. Uh, and, uh, and I think a lot of the work we're doing is blurring the lines between you know, what's historically been called index and what's historically been called active. And there's a lot that technologies like AI can do to make that blurring happen faster and better and more precisely uh, than we would have previously thought possible. Yeah, I just can't wait to like the what you know the cloud. You know, if you just look at how we got here, if and almost with COVID, I mean, it forced everyone into the cloud. You yeah, know, a lot of small mid-sized companies did not go as fast as these large conglomerates like yourselves, and we wouldn't be able to actually get as far with AI if people didn't understand what data meant and where, how does it have to be stored? And I just can't wait till I can ask my data a question that, you know, I have to ask someone else to get that information or have to go to four or five platforms to look it up. And that's going to come, but it may take some years, but it's, it's coming and this technology is going to allow that, which is just incredible. 
Yeah. So I know you you have a lot to do today, uh, but I want to do one last question because I think yeah, sure. it's important. It's like, who, who shaped your career? If you could make, say, one thing that really shaped your career, you've had a lot of amazing things. Who would that one person be? Yeah, look, I, I've had many terrific mentors uh, at every stage of, uh, of my career, and I've been a, a great beneficiary of that, and, and hopefully – um, uh, I'm trying to be a mentor to other people to give back to that. Uh, but if I think of one pivotal person, uh, I think it would be Charlie Halleck, uh, who was the first employee at BlackRock. He was the co-president of BlackRock. He passed away about uh, in 2015. Uh, and when I was first, uh, when Larry had first offered me the job to, to join BlackRock, uh, I turned it down. And I, I'd known um, the Larry and the team here just as a client because I used to work with them uh, uh, back when I was an advisor. And uh, Larry was very understanding, and you know he was playing a long game and and uh, <laughs> and like. And and Charlie came up to me two weeks later, and I was giving a speech at um, at the BlackRock's U.S. Wealth Conference. Uh, and he pulled me aside and he asked me, you know, why I was such an idiot. Uh, he, he used more colorful language uh, than that. Uh, and then he sat me down and he explained the answer to his own question. Uh, and the core of it was that, you know, you can join a firm like BlackRock with, uh, you know, our ambition and our desire to reinvent. And you can change the way in which the whole industry operates. And, uh, and I think were it not for that uh, impromptu intervention uh, that Charlie had had. After that conversation, I called Larry back and said, you know, I think I've made a mistake. And he was very gracious about it to join the firm, you know, a month later. Uh, uh, but that was a, a change the course of my career. And, you know, there are many different moments in one's career where you have these pivots. Uh, and for me, I'll always be grateful that I had a, uh, a good uh, uh, berating intervention from Charlie uh, back then. Uh, which, uh, at least for me, allowed me to, uh, to, to, to make a better decision than I might have come up with the first time around. Yeah, you could have went fight or flight and said, who the hell is this guy? I, you know, well, I don't want to be a part of someone that calls me an idiot. Or you yeah. weren't afraid I found it strangely it. motivating. I found it strangely <laughs> motivating, which, which he, said, he said would make me a good cultural fit. So it was a, uh, it's, uh, it's was a good great. lesson. And, uh, you know, you sometimes think about mentors, John, as just being the people who like, uh, to puff you up and, and are always saying nice things. But at least for me, uh, you know, a lot of my great mentors were people who were, um, you know, who could be quite hard on me. Um, but, if, but you seek out disagreement. You seek out people telling you that you're not, you know, this wasn't quite right or you weren't thinking about it right. And, and certainly uh, I didn't need to seek Charlie out. He sought me out uh, uh, kind of around it. But it, it was a it, that was the moment that came to mind. That's amazing. I love it. Well, thanks to, you know, look where you are now and you enjoy it and love it. And uh, I really appreciate you being on this podcast. Uh, people are going to get a lot from your story. Uh, you know, I personally love it. And I'm so glad we were able to, to meet. And uh, thank you again very much. For no, being on the and podcast. thank you for having me here. It's been it's been a great, great conversation.